Uh, Vinny, thanks for opening the place to us today. Of course. Okay, so I remember the first time I met you, and you were scary. You were scary. I was scared of you. Right. I ain't now. I know. I know, bro. You're you're winning right now. You're winning <laughs> no, right no, no, now. No, no, no. So you started as this 28-year-old punk, and you you went through the ranks. I mean, you you were very, very, very successful, okay? Who's the probably the most influential coach, either in, maybe all of them, in fighting, in your walk with Christ? Scott Nickel is a big, big influence in my life. Yep. Like, I try to speak to him every week, if not multiple times a week. Yep. Um, he's just a sound, calm voice in my life that can make sense of the chaos sometimes when the chaos gets too loud. So he helps me with my, my walk with Jesus. He helps me with my walk with my wife. Like he's got a lot of influence from a striking perspective and the, and the coach who had the most influence for me from when I was fighting was probably his name is Trevor Whitman. He introduced me to coaching, coaching the person rather than coaching the skill. But he showed me that there is a different way to speak into these athletes' lives. You know what I mean? And I do. And he was a he was a big influence. So him, Scott, those are my coaches. Man. A good coach is gonna watch you fall down and pick you back up. He's gonna give you the words to help you keep going. It was for my life. It wasn't for winning a fight. It was like, hey, this is what it looks like sometimes. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. What are you gonna do about it? Are you gonna lay there or are you gonna stand back up? Chipping forward. How are you gonna feel when a 59 year old just knows? I'm gonna be terrified. <laughs> <laughs>
He went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus is a town, and synagogues are like Jewish churches back then. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Saul was a Jewish religious expert. I mean, at this time, what we know about him is he had memorized entire books of the Old Testament. He knew all about the various laws that the Jewish people had about how to worship God. And then you have these Christians over here, and Christians are saying, you don't need to follow the laws, you don't need to follow the rituals to worship God. All you need is a personal relationship with Jesus. And Paul's seeing these people talk about things that are going to wreck his entire way of life. And so he's gotta shut it down. He's gotta figure out how to shut it down. And here's what's important for us to understand about Saul today. Saul had what he understood as a calling. He had a purpose in life. Even though it seems a little bit weird to us right now, but he had a purpose, he had direction, he felt important and valuable and like he was contributing something to the world. But real life hits. Verse three, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? And what does he say there? Me. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting other people? He says, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He said, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you're gonna be told what to do. Paul gets up, he opens his eyes and when he opens his eyes, um, he's totally blind. He can't see anything. And that's somewhere where I feel like a lot of us have been before. Maybe not blinded by Jesus at the side of the road, okay? But like Saul, we feel like we've got a purpose. We feel like we've got a direction. We, we know where we're headed and then real life hits and it hits hard. And all of a sudden, we're blindsided, and we're, unse- we're unsure of ourselves. We're insecure. We're not really sure what we're going to do next. could look like this. All your life, you wanted to be a mom. You've been babysitting since you were 10 years old. You've got kids' names picked out, and you got married, and then you guys worked together to buy the house to get the rooms ready. Then you start trying to have kids, and that first pregnancy test comes back, and it's negative. And you think, okay, that, that, that's normal And then the second test, and then the third month, and the fourth month, and on and on and on. And then you went to the doctor, and that test came back positive. It affirmed what you thought, that this thing that you've been aiming your life toward, that you've wanted since you were 10 years old, it's not possible for you. And you're crushed, and you you don't even know who you are anymore. You're not sure where you're gonna go because of that. Or maybe it's like this, maybe after years, of being an employee, you've worked your way up step-by-step, position after position to becoming a manager, and you finally decided you're gonna take a risk, you're gonna take a leap, and you're gonna start your own business. It's been your dream to be a business owner, and so you come up with a business plan, and you get investors, and they're putting their money behind you and your vision. You've got the entire shop ready, you're ready to open the doors, and then COVID hits. So many of us have been there, and the investors pull out, and you run out of money, and you have to declare bankruptcy before you even can open your doors. You had your life planned out, and it didn't include the cancer. It didn't include the divorce. It didn't include the kid that ran away from home. It didn't include the accident. How many of us have been in that place where life blindsides us? Yeah, some of us 
We might be in that place right now. We've all felt like we're on track for something. We're passionate, we're excited, we're on mission, and then all of a sudden we're blindsided by something that we weren't expected. We're confused, we're disoriented, we're questioning everything. I'll tell you, I've been there. Like I said, uh, um, this role at Flatirons is not something that I've expected. 10 years ago, my family moved out here and I was uh, joined the teaching team out here and was uh, responsible for getting our West Campus off the ground and launching our West Campus and I loved that, that time. But some of you all were out here when my family moved out to, to Flatirons, moved out to Colorado 10 years ago. And I'm telling you, uh, working at Flatirons was a dream. Like, I was so excited. I used to tell people I would work at a church like Flatirons even if it was in Nebraska. Like, that's a... Uh, <laughs> And that's saying something, isn't it? You know, like that's saying, we've got some people who watch from Nebraska. I hope they can take a joke and uh, we'll see. But, but I, I was so excited for what God was doing here at Flatirons and then I got to be a part of it. And this is the kind of role that I would like dreamed about since I was 15 years old. Like I was writing sermons when I was 15 years old in youth group. I went to Bible college to learn how to study the Bible, how to teach more. I was a youth pastor teaching these students. I was so excited. And so we moved our family halfway across the country for this role, this church, and I was so excited, but the teaching pastor role turned out to be um, harder than I thought it was gonna be. I thought it was gonna be hard, it was harder. And I was struggling, I was choking. And I remember it so clear. Um, we, it was a Tuesday morning, we're leaving um, a planning meeting and Scott asked me to come to Jim's office and when I went in, the rest of the lead team followed. And they confirmed what I already knew, that um, the teaching pastor role wasn't working out. And um, I was not growing as fast as I needed to grow. And there might be room on the team for me for in the future, but we, we didn't really know. We'd figure that out in the next few months. And I didn't argue I didn't make my case. This is the thing. I knew that they were right. I knew I was struggling. I knew. I, I, but I was just so embarrassed and so ashamed. But I couldn't admit it to anybody because I was the guy that moved his family away from all their family and friends in Kentucky out for this role in Colorado. And I just kept on thinking like, what am I going to tell my wife? Am I gonna have to go back to Kentucky with my tail between my legs because I couldn't cut it out in Colorado? Guys, I've been there when life blindsides you. Whatever that looks like, it leaves you confused, it leaves you unsettled, not sure what to do next. And if you're getting the urge to come up to me in the lobby afterwards and say, Jesse, I thought your teaching was great back then, okay? I thought you were doing a great job. I just wanna start, thank you for that. You know, that's really kind, but here's what I know. When I look back and watch videos of myself teaching back then, like I, I cringe and I turn it off as soon as I can, okay? Like I didn't like my teaching, but I was struggling, okay? And looking back, the kindest, the most helpful, the most loving thing that Jim and the team could have done for me is take me out of that role before I just white knuckled it so long that it wrecked everything. It was the best thing that they could have done for me. Maybe you could look at the moment in your life when you've been blindsided and see the same thing, but what I can tell you, in the moment, you don't have, you don't have that perspective. In the moment, I was just stunned and confused and didn't know what to do next, and I think this is where a lot of us have been. This is where some of us may be right now. 
And I think this is where Paul was 2,000 years ago. While he's sitting in the city, he's blind. God speaks to a follower of Jesus named Ananias, and look what happens. It says, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, think about this. Ananias doesn't know about anything that's happened in Saul's life, okay? He doesn't know about any of the change. He doesn't know that, Anani- he doesn't know that Saul met Jesus on that road to D- Damascus. All he knows is he's hearing a voice telling him to go pray for a Christian murderer, okay? You gotta think, you gotta think Ananias is going like, okay, uh, God, if that is you, thanks for the fun errand. I'll go pray for the guy that wants to kill me, okay? And it continues right here. Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man. All the harm that he has done to your holy people, people like me in Jerusalem, And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. AKA, God, are are you sure? Are we talking about the same Saul? I mean, like, don't you think it's better that he's blind? Okay, couldn't you like take him out of the knees too? You know, like that would be better for all of us. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Those are people that are non-Jewish, okay? and their kings into the people of Israel. And I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house, entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days for the disciples in Damascus. And so out of obedience, Ananias does four things. Number one, he lays hands on Saul. Now this is just ancient custom for saying, I accept you, I confirm you, I care for you. So he lays hands on him, he baptizes him, he feeds him, and then he sits with him. The Bible says they spend several days together, and that word several days, it doesn't just mean like a couple days, it actually means like weeks or months of, or years of Saul spending time with Ananias and these people learning from him. And after the blindness, after the confusion, and then after spending time with some of the right people, people like Ananias, Paul has a new direction, he's got a new name, he's got a new calling, check it out. It says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all of those who heard him were astonished. They asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc up in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Because of that time with Ananias, everything changed. And I tell you, I've seen a similar thing in my life too. Looking back on that season of my life when I was just so confused and disoriented, I wanted the plan. God, why are you doing this to me? God, what are you doing this for? Give me some direction. Like, what's the plan here? And you gotta think that, that Paul's thinking the same thing when he's blind on the side of the road and desperate. He's like, okay, God, why did you do that? God, what's the plan moving forward? And so many times I think that we ask God for plans and sometimes God gives us plans. But other times, I think most of the time, when we ask for plans, God gives us people. 
He gives us the right people who can start speaking wisdom into our lives. And looking back on the difficult seasons in my life, especially the season where I didn't know if working here at Flatirons was in my future, God connected me to the right people and they directed me, they led me, they encouraged me. Darren Bennett helped me remember that teaching wasn't the only thing that I had to offer. Paul Bruner taught me how to put people over projects and Scott Nickel invested in my leadership capacity. Eddie Anderson taught me how to be a good pastor but also to be a great dad and a great husband. Chris Mosier helped me find my identity again. Brian Mott and Howard Hargrove just drank bourbon with me. (laughs) And they let me sit there and be discouraged, angry, disillusioned, and confused. And they just listened to me, sat with me, and encouraged me. And Jim, he reminded me that he still saw something in me He still believed in me and he still thought I had potential. And I can tell you right now after that period of blindness, that period of confusion, after getting in touch with the right people and spending time with them, I feel like Paul, I feel like I've got new direction. I feel like I've got new purpose. And I'm telling you, I love what I get to do now. Like I feel like I get to spend every moment of the day in my sweet spot. I get to work with staff, get to develop our staff, get to watch staff grow. I get to dream with Jim and the lead team about the future of Flatirons. And guys, I'm telling you, like the future is gonna be so good. We cannot wait for the future here at Flatirons. We're so excited about it. And that excitement has spilled out into like my family relationships and my community and my personal life. I can actually look back and say, I'm grateful that I was knocked out of one role so I could be prepared for another one. But I wanna point something out. That was nine years ago. I think so often we, we want that clarity immediately. It took many, many years to go from the point where I was confused and felt like I was stumbling around in the blind to get to the point where I could look back on that moment with clarity, could look back on that moment with gratitude. It takes some time. The truth is, whether we're talking about Paul, we're talking about my life, we're talking about your life, if we wanna make it through the, I was just blindsided and now I'm laying here on my back moments, we can't do it alone. We need other people to help us move through the blindness and out to the other side. But so often, we try to do it on our own. And I think one of the reasons we try to do that is what the author John Dixon calls Competency extrapolation. And here's what those two fancy words mean. Competency extrapolation is when we think that we're an expert in an area beyond our competency because we're an expert in something else. I mean, you've seen this. I I think our society right now is built somewhat on competency extrapolation. It's woven into the fabric of society, especially with social media, because you will have people who have these massive followings on social media. They'll have tens of thousands of people who follow them, and these people, they only have a following because they're a good athlete or a good actor or they're good-looking, okay? They, They have these followings, and then they'll get on their social media, and they'll talk about, like, politics, they'll talk about religion, they'll talk about philosophy, they'll talk about science, they'll talk about all these things that are outside of their scope, 
of confidence, okay? They, they, they do that, and here's the thing. Tens of thousands of people will listen. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that those people shouldn't have an opinion, okay? We're all entitled to our opinions, right? You've got some opinions. I've got some opinions. We probably wouldn't agree with each other's opinions. That's totally okay, but I would say we should be careful when we're primarily listening to people when they're talking outside of their area of expertise and outside of their area of competency. I'll give you a prime example. I love Kanye West as a musician, okay? I probably wouldn't vote for him for president, okay? Not saying that there's anything wrong if you did. Maybe I am, I'm not sure. But you've seen competency extrapolation in your own life too, okay? This is like your brother's a doctor and because he's a doctor, he thinks he's also like a marriage expert even though he's been married three times, okay? And telling you that advice, you've seen that. We've even seen some of that in our own lives. I mean, it's me saying, hey, I... I learned how to run a ministry on my own. I learned how to mountain bike on my own. I learned how to fish on my own. And I put together a few Ikea bunk beds in my day. So I'm, I think I'm going to knock down that wall on my first floor and redo my kitchen on my own, okay? I'm gonna walk through Home Depot without asking for help because that's what real men do. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Okay. If I get stuck, I'll watch a video on YouTube. I mean, it's just plumbing. How hard can it be? Have you ever been there? Wives are looking over like, oh, God. Like, and where it ends is you're on the floor in your kitchen having a panic attack because you can't put the flooring together properly. That's a true story, by the way. Okay, then ask my wife. She's here right now. She could tell you that's a true, true story. And if you're one of those guys that can just kind of figure things like that out on your own, Good for you. We, we are so happy for you. No, competency extrapolation, it's this subtle form of arrogance. And we don't see that in Paul's life. Because Paul, he realized that even though he knew a lot about something, he still had more to learn in other areas. I mean, Paul had like books of the Old Testament memorized. He was an expert in the Old Testament. He knew all there was to know about how to worship God. He came from the right school, right family, right pedigree, all that stuff. And yet he realized he still had more to learn, especially when it came to having a relationship with Jesus. And Paul demonstrates humility when he puts himself under the guidance of Ananias. This simply being mentored, it requires humility. It requires the humility for us to admit that there are things we don't know. It requires the humility of us to point at people and say, hey, they're better at this than we are. It requires humility to put ourselves under the guidance of someone else. Now, I learned that the hard way. I learned that the hard way. It required me being pulled to the side. I was humbled. I didn't humble myself. I was humbled. And after a lot of processing, I was able to realize I need some people speaking into my life. I need some people helping me to make sense of this. I need some companionship. I need some encouragement. I need some challenge. And God brought me those people, those people just like he brought Paul and Ananias. Let's talk about Ananias real quick. I did some research on his background. Who is this man that God chose to invest in the life of one of the most prominent leaders of the early church in our faith's history? And I did some research, read some commentaries, had some staff do some research, and here's what we found out. Ananias was just a guy. He was just a guy that followed Jesus. He had no pedigree, he had no schooling, he had nothing significant in his background. He's just a guy who was following Jesus. And I think that's really, really important. 
I think God's trying to tell us something with that. Because all through this series, we've been saying, hey, you need, to, you need to be mentored by somebody, but also you need to find somebody to mentor. And oftentimes, when we think, hey, I've gotta go mentor somebody, we're thinking like, okay, I've gotta become an expert at something. I've gotta have my entire life together. I've gotta have everything figured out. I've gotta have all the answers. And, we, and these questions come in our mind of, what, if, what do I have to teach them? What if they don't get anything out of it, okay? What, what do I have to offer? I want you to look at Ananias and just think about this for a second. We gotta assume that he's scared. We gotta assume that he feels insecure. We gotta assume that he's intimidated. We gotta assume that he feels unqualified to invest in Paul who knew what he knew. But he made himself available. He said yes, he was obedient. Mentoring, mentoring simply requires obedience. And I wanna tell you right now, just like Ananias, you have something to offer. You have something that someone else needs, no matter how unqualified you feel. It's not a qualification issue. Right now, it's an obedience issue. Look at how the Bible says it this way. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do, like invest their life in someone else, mentor someone else, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it it's actually a sin for them. I wanna tell you right now, you have something to offer. You might say, well, I'm, I'm just a mom. I can tell you somewhere out there, there's a mom, she's a new mom, and she's struggling because she has this new baby that she loves more than she could ever imagine, and she's infuriated by at the same time. And parenting is just so much harder than she could imagine. And she might need some help and she might need some parenting tips, but what she needs more than anything is to just sit with someone who knows what it's like. I can tell you right now, there's a 22-year-old who entered the workforce and it is not like he imagined. It's so much more cutthroat than he thought that it would be. And it's, at work, they speak this language that he doesn't even understand. And his boss definitely did not read those management books he had to read in college, okay? Like, there's so much different. And he might need some advice and he might need some coaching. But what he probably needs more than anything is just to sit with someone who's been there before. It could be the woman who found out she can't have kids, a woman who just lost her job, the man who found out he has Alzheimer's. It could be trying to grow in your faith, trying to recover your marriage, trying to lead a company. What does it look like to be a single parent? You guys filled out these surveys where we got thousands of people saying, hey, I would love to be mentored. I would love to meet somebody and be coached by this person, but they're not looking for experts. What they're looking for is just somebody who knows what it's like. They're looking for somebody who's been there before. And when you match up a humble mentee with an obedient mentor, here's what happens in the humble mentee's life. In the mentee's life, they start to like understand things for the first time. It's like they have this clear understanding for the first time. They've got clarity. It's like the scales fall off their eyes. That story that we looked at with Paul and Ananias, when you match up a mentor with a mentee, what happens? And they have this new clarity, this new understanding, and the scales come off of their eyes. Then what happens is the mentee's life, it doesn't, the transformation doesn't just stop there, but what happens is they start mentoring someone else. Paul doesn't just take, 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 take. No, Paul starts investing his life in somebody else named Timothy. And look what he writes to Timothy here in 2 Timothy 2. He said, you then my son. So Paul looks at Timothy and says, you're, you're my son. I consider you my son. 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now look at the scope of mentoring relationships right here. Let's just count them out together. And the things that you, that's one, have heard me, that's two, say in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust to reliable people, that's three, who will be qualified to teach others, that's four. That's four generations of mentorship there in one verse. Paul's talking about a mentor who finds somebody to mentor, who finds somebody to mentor, who finds somebody to mentor. And that chain keeps on going. And every time that mentee's eyes, it's like the scales fall off their eyes and they start to see clearly again. And that lineage, that legacy of mentorship, all of us are invited to be a part of that. And it goes all the way back through Paul to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus mentored people. Jesus even had a mentor. So as we wrap up this series, I wanna get practical for the last few minutes. We've been saying all series three, three things. Number one, you need a mentor. You need somebody investing in your life. Number two, you need a cohort. You need a group of people around you encouraging you. Jim and James talked about this last week. I'm not gonna talk too much about it, but they talked about this concept of having a circle of people in your life that are unknowing and uncaring. And if that sounds confusing, go and rewatch last week because they put it so well there. So you need a mentor, you need a cohort, and you need to mentor someone. You need to be investing your life in someone else. So let's take that first one. You need a mentor. If by the end of this series, if right now you don't have a mentor in your life, I wanna give you a step-by-step -step process for how to find a mentor. So this is something worth taking notes in or at the end, like take a picture. The first step is this. You should pray about it. Pray that God would help you find a mentor. Here's the thing. The Bible says that God promises that if we ask for wisdom, God's gonna give us wisdom. And so often God gives us wisdom by bringing in people into our lives who are wiser than we are. God wants you to find a mentor. So pray and ask him for it. Step two, find a person that you respect. Doesn't have to be in everything, okay? Just in, in one of the important areas of life, whether it's faith, whether it's finances, whether it's leadership or parenting or, or, or marriage, find somebody that you respect and if you can't think of one person in your life right now, if you're saying, Jesse, I can't think of one person in my life I respect in one of those areas, then I wanna challenge you, put yourself in a place where you'll be around people like that that you could respect. Some quick, easy examples. Go volunteer in kids' ministry. Okay, volunteer in one of our ministries around here, student ministry. Get involved in a group, because I'm telling you, you're gonna be in a circle with people you can look at and go, I can respect that person. You can find those people. And if you are praying that God would bring a mentor into your life and you're putting yourself in the place where you're interacting with people that you respect, you combine those two things, God will be able to bring you that mentor. He'll be able to answer that prayer. So pray, find a person that you respect, and then three, tell them what you respect about them and tell them you wanna learn that from them. Don't just say, hey, will you mentor me? Don't walk up to a stranger and say, hey, will you mentor me, okay? That is a lot of pressure. That's a little weird. And if they say yes, you should probably run, okay? Like, you do not want that person to be your mentor. Instead, start small. Step four, ask them out for lunch, for ask to take them out for lunch, for coffee, beer, golf, whatever, so that you can ask them questions. It doesn't need to be expensive. It just needs to be intentional. And here, here's the thing, just wanna clarify, 
Guys, you should do this with other guys, and ladies, you should do this with other ladies. Don't use this as a pickup line, okay? Like, hey, I see this thing I really respect in you. You know, I want to learn this from you. No, you should find another guy or find another lady. Then step five, and outside pray, this might be the most important one. Actually prepare for that conversation. So that's something... um, that this is just editorial, but I think that you should spend as much time as you're gonna be in that conversation, spend that much time thinking about the conversation, thinking about questions, thinking about topics that you want to talk about. Don't just buy coffee, sit down, be silent, and say like, mentor me, okay? Instead, you drive the conversation, you come up with the questions, you bring up the topics. And step six, if it goes well, ask if you can do it again sometime. Ask if you can do it again. The conversation goes well, do it again, and then do it again. And if it works, then you've started a mentoring relationship, but it doesn't just start with saying, hey, will you be my mentor? And if you try this later today, and the person says, hey, I just don't have the time for that, or it's not the right fit, I I don't want you to be discouraged. Know that that's totally natural. Or if you find a mentor, and you have a great relationship for a few months, and then it, it, it stops, or that relationship fizzles out after a while, that's also totally natural, too. The mentors in my life have been mentors for seasons, and that's totally natural. We're gonna follow this. I just want you, if you don't have a mentor, take a picture of this right now and follow that, follow this line by line until you can start a relationship with somebody where they can be investing in your life and you can be learning from them and the scales, I promise you, are gonna fall off. Now, I wanna talk to the potential mentors in the room. You need to be mentoring someone. That person's probably already in your life. You probably have influence over them. You might be a little bit older than them. I'm gonna give you a tool for mentoring that I think just helps knock the scales off of people's eyes so much. It's just four words, and it's this. I see in you. I see in you. I see in you a leader. I see in you, you've got the ability to be a great coach someday. I see in you, you could be a great teacher. I see in you, you are a really good dad. I see in you that you could be a positive role model to the kids that are around you. And if they'll believe it, then you work together to bring that into reality. See, that time that I was blindsided nine years ago, I needed to see that God wasn't done with me. I needed to know that I still had a purpose, even though it looked different than it did before that. I needed to know that somebody still believed in me. Think about it. What would have happened, okay? What would have happened if I would have not been blindsided nine years ago? What would that have looked like? I, what would have happened if I would have just kept on white-knuckling it, living in a panic the whole time, living outside of my gifting? I would have burnt out. You guys have seen that before. I would have burnt out, and I wouldn't have just, I wouldn't have just lost a job. I would have lost, could have lost some of the most important parts of my life, my family, my friends, my relationship, my ministry. I could look back and say, hey, I'm, I'm grateful for that, and I wanna bring up this thought. What, think about Paul being struck blind. It wasn't because he was out in the sun too long. It wasn't as punishment for all the bad things that he's done. God blindsided Paul. God's the one that blindsided Paul. God decided the most loving thing that he could do for Paul is to pull him over this way and put him in a place where he was temporarily stumbling and confused and not understanding why, because God knew that only something drastic was gonna drive Paul to other people so that those people could drive Paul to a better life. 
Now, I'm not given a theology of why bad things happen, okay? That's way above my pay grade, and I don't know your situation, all right? I just wanna ask the question, for those of us right now, we're, we are resonating with being lost. We're resonating with being confused. Is it possible that God has disoriented your life for a reason? Because he knows this is the only thing that's gonna drive you to the right people so they can drive you to a better life. Is it possible he know that this was the only way that you would stop trying to go at it on your own and you'd accept humility and you would ask somebody else for help? I'm not saying that that's your story, okay? But we've been talking about the importance of relationships. And when we go at life alone, we have to tell ourselves what we see in ourselves. You've done that. And it's rarely good. Now, God knows we need these other people, these people who can see things clearly. And when they can look at us and say, I see in you, that can lead to a new life. That can lead to a new direction. That can lead to a new calling. A friend of mine, uh, he attends our Longmont campus. He told me once, he said, Jesse, do you know the four most powerful letters in the alphabet? I see and you. <laughs> it's cheesy, I know, but you will remember it, and that's what I want. I see in you. We look at other people, we tell people what we see in them because this is what God's done for us. He's done it throughout history. He didn't just see Abraham, this man that can't lead his family. He called, saw what Abraham could be. Abraham could be the father of many nations. With Joseph, he didn't just see this arrogant and entitled young man. He saw somebody that was gonna save the entire nation of Israel. With David, he didn't see this young shepherd boy who had been put out to pasture. He saw a warrior. He saw a giant killer. He saw a king. With Peter, he didn't just see somebody who ran away when everything got too hard. He saw a rock that he could build his church on. With Paul, he didn't just see a Christian murderer. He saw somebody that could take the gospel to the very ends of the known world. He doesn't just see things as they are currently. God sees what could be. And think about all those people. All those people, they all had their own. I got blindsided and knocked on my back moments. Abraham in a desert, Joseph in a well, David losing a child, Paul being blinded by God. And these blindside moments were the setup for what God was gonna do in their future. Whatever you're walking through right now, know this. God doesn't see you, and God does not just see this as it is currently. He sees things for what they could be, and that's how he's looking at you now. All you might see is inadequacy. You look around at everybody else, and you just feel like you'll never measure up. They've got it all together, and you don't. He, he sees a person that is fully, in this moment, 100%, the person that he created you to be. He sees a person who's more than enough. Right now, all you might see is fear and anxiety and worry. He sees somebody who is so important to him. He sees so, somebody who he's setting up for a great future. He's, he sees somebody and he's got a plan for your life and it's a good one. Right now, all you might be seeing is your overwhelming circumstances. You just look around and there is so much to do and so little time. He looks at you and knows that you were made for this moment. He looks at you and says, I've given you everything that you need and you are in this spot for such a time as this. All you might see is, I'm just too broken. 
Your pain and your shame and your past, they haunt you every single night. But God sees your story is actually gonna be the story that leads to a breakthrough for somebody else because they got to hear your story and it's the only way that they were gonna get to meet Jesus is through your story. He sees in you. I tell you, when I look at this room, I don't just see lost and broken people, although that's, we all say, we've all got work to do, but I don't see that. I see good dads. I see good moms. I see leaders. I see mentors. I see wisdom. I see servants. I see people that are making an impact. I see kind, fair business owners. I see great teachers. I see kings. I see queens. I see game changers. When we'll partner up with God, when we will see what he sees and then we'll share that with other people, it could change everything. Let's pray. God, I, uh, God right now, what we need, what some of us need more than anything is, God, we need to hear what you see in us because right now the stories that we're telling ourselves, God, they are not good, they're not true, they don't line up with what you think. And so God, I pray right now two things. Number one, will you just help us to understand in this moment what you see in us? But then God, will you send somebody into our life to tell us what they see in us? God, knowing that it's what you see in us that they're telling us that. God, we need that right now. God, for the people in this room, for all of us that have what it takes, we have something that somebody else needs. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to be a mentor, to invest our lives in somebody else. Because God, we know that this world is not gonna get better if we just stay in our own huddles, but God, this world is gonna get better if we do what your son Jesus did, what Paul did, and invested their lives into other people. And so God, we wanna invest our lives in other people. Will you show us who to invest in? And God, as we close this series, God, we are so thankful that even when it feels like we're alone, God, you're still in our corner. You're still behind us, God, you're still with us, God, you're still rooting us on, you still love us, and God, we are so, so thankful for that. We love you and we worship you, it's in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Flatirons, thanks so much for being with us this weekend, okay? Hey, we've got a new series coming up next week. You're gonna wanna be here. It's called Post-Christian Jesus. It's looking at what happens when Jesus and culture intersect. You're gonna wanna be here. You're gonna wanna invite a friend. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks, Flatirons.